Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Asking For It, the podcast that reclaims and reframes that powerful phrase to find out what people are actually asking for. I am Amy Maiden and I am your host and I am sorry, it's been a while. Sorry, I took a kind of impromptu hiatus there from putting out podcast episodes and gave you zero heads up. I have no excuse other than it's just got really busy. There's been a lot of stuff going on in the world of my life outside the pod that took my attention. But I'm now here. I'm sitting in the sunshine while I record this with my my lovely dog next to me. Well, he's my housemate's dog. Uh, and I'm bringing you the what I would call the final episode in this first batch of conversations. I will introduce you to that uh, that that guest in a moment. But also, I want to acknowledge that there is a part of this first season that I have let, I think, myself and everybody down in, and that is that so far I have not had a single First Nations woman's guest. This is something I'm not very happy about, and I could come to you with a hundred reasons and excuses. Went out to lots of people, lots of scheduling stuff. People have said, yes, diaries haven't aligned, all those kind of things. It is not for a lack of desire but it's also because I haven't locked it in yet. And that is something that I really wanted to have as the very first episode up. There's incredible people that I want to introduce to you or reintroduce to you or talk to with you that I haven't had yet. And in this day and age, in this world, it's not good enough. It's just not good enough of me. And so I just want to apologize for that and say that there are some stellar guests coming and I wanted to profile them first and I didn't. Um, and that's going to change in the next batch of conversations. After this episode, I am going to take a little hiatus. So should we call this the end of season one? Maybe? I don't know. It's, it's just a little break for now because this is the last episode that I have in the can and I need to take a moment, line up all the guests for the next season, make sure I am prioritizing the voices that I came here to prioritize uh, and be respectful of all of those people and the time that they have and can give. Uh, and so it's going to take me a little time to line all of that up. But this is not the last conversation, I promise. I've had such a spectacular time making this pod. It's been a real joy to, and a privilege. Um, and all of the things that all you lovely people have messaged me about it have have been so great and just a way of connecting. So it will come back, um, probably not in the next couple of months, but it will come back, I promise. So when I one of the other things that I said I would do when I created this podcast was that one in ten voices – would be a man. And so here we are, the first male guest. And what an incredible person I have for you. Con Karapanagiotides is the CEO and founder of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in Australia. He founded it back in June 2001 with the simple vision that he wanted to create a place of hope and welcome where no one was turned away. He wanted to create a centre that stood for justice, that was willing to be at the coalface when and where it mattered for people, where dreams of freedom burned brightly in the hearts of all who entered. Wow. What a vision. Con is an OAM. 
Uh, he's a proudly Greek man growing up in a working class family in a small country town in Victoria. Um, Con's personal experience of racism and witnessing the exploitation of his parents in factories, well, that planted the seeds for his passion for human rights. And he went on to become a lawyer, a social worker, and a teacher. Uh, he's been recognised as Australian of the Year in Victoria. He was invited to participate in the 2020 Summit, uh, voted one of Australia's 20th unsung heroes, and he, so many other things, honestly, go and look at his bio. Uh, but he's just had a book come out, which is really exciting. It is called The Power of Hope. It is in bookstores now. You can buy it online. I highly um, recommend that you do. It is a simple but powerfully inspiring memoir um, about his life. There's a really beautiful quality to Con. Um, I really enjoyed talking to him. I went to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in Melbourne in Footscray. It was my first visit there. And he was having the craziest, most busy day, which I think is what his days look like every day. Um, but he took some time out to talk to me and I cannot thank him enough. Um, and I'm truly grateful to have had this conversation. So here it is. I hope you enjoy it. Our first male guest, and I'm so honored that it is Con Karapanagiotides. Okay, great. Well, Con, thank you so much for coming pleasure. on the podcast Thanks today. for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so I'm going to start this by asking you what I ask everybody. You're yeah. our first male guest, firstly. What a privilege. Thank you. <laughs> One in ten is, 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 a, is a man on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, tell me, what is it that you're asking for? In terms of my work at the ASRC? Sure. Sure. Let's start there. Well, I feel passionate about a lot of different issues. Yeah. Um, but if I start with the issue around people who are seeking refuge... What I'm wanting there is a country that is compassionate, welcoming, and fair. And so at the moment, my organisation is trying to change the policy in how we treat refugees because we believe that when you come seeking our protection, you should have dignity while you do so. That just means the right to work, health care, a roof over your head. You should have permanency when you're found to be a refugee so that you can call Australia home. Mm -hmm. You should be allowed to sponsor your family over because how do you really have home without family? And that that legal process should be fair. And this will all happen in a country where there's political leadership that welcomes refugees mm -hmm. and that protects refugees. And that's what I'm after when it comes to refugees. Yeah. But what else? Well, on other issues, the other... <laughs> I suppose for me there's, there's some, a whole range of key areas that I'm really passionate about. The other one, um, one of the other big ones is obviously the plight of First Nations people. So I've been on a board of a wonderful Indigenous organisation called Children's Ground for the last five years. Um, and there they're working at this amazing model um, in the Northern Territory around... What if we gave Indigenous children the same educational opportunities as we give white children? Well, we have a situation where more than half, in, half of all Indigenous men that are my age are dead by now, mm. when the gap is not closing, when we have a government that refuses to actually uh, support the Uluru Statement or genuinely believe in restorative justice, uh, we have a long way to go. And so for me, how can we talk about welcoming our newest Australians if we can't start by first talking about our first. And so I feel very deeply passionate about the fact that what is happening to Indigenous people is scandalous and is a national blood on this country and mm. that we need to be listening to Indigenous people, investing in self-determination, Indigenous-controlled and led solutions. Outside of that, I'm also really passionate about women's rights. Mm -hmm. And that takes a, a number of different spaces. One is about 
underrepresentation of women of colour. I'm on a board of an organisation called the Diverse Women's Mentoring Association. Mm -hmm. And our work there is all about tackling the gross underrepresentation of women of colour and of cold women in professional settings. So we're starting with the legal community, then we're following up with STEM. And there again, it's there's enough sexism that women face already in the workplace. But when you add the layer of race to it as well, uh, women already have to be so many times better and more clever and intelligent than a man to get the equal opportunities. Now, if you're a woman of colour or a cold woman, you face even greater barriers and even greater challenges. Mm. And I'm really broadly passionate about a really simple issue that, that that is one of that all of us should be living in communities where we feel safe. And yet we have epidemic levels of male violence against women. We have uh, a woman plus being killed every week in this country. We've had mm. over 600 women killed in this country in the last decade through male violence. And at a time where we pour, pour billions into this war on terror uh, that has claimed three lives in the last 10 years, where we've had almost 700 lives lost through male violence, when we have the leading cause of preventable death and injury for women aged 18 to 45 is the violence of men that they know, when we have uh, something in the vicinity of one in three women reporting during their life and they experience some form of male violence, when we have... Indigenous women 30 to 40 times more likely to be hostilised as a consequence of her, when we have more than one woman a week being killed by her, uh, we have an epidemic and we have a crisis here. And yet at the same time as we have a crisis, we have a federal government that is cutting funding to women's refuges, refuses to provide safe long-term funding to the National Homelessness Framework, and simply white ribbons, white ribbons do not bring back dead women. And so... Um, this is just an outrageous uh, situation that we find ourselves in, and it, and it should matter to men for a couple of reasons. And the first one is not because they are our sister or mother or partner or daughter. That is in itself so deeply problematic that the only time we care about women is when they're an extension of us as property or an extension of us as men. We should be caring about it because they're somebody. And how do we have an equal and just and fair society um, if women have to live with a constant fear? So I was talking about, you know, with a friend about, you know, what do people, you know, what do we fear when we're dating? And I'm like, oh, I fear rejection. It's like, and, and I ask my female friends, what do you fear? And they're like, I fear getting raped on a date. So when you see the contrast between, as a man, my greatest fear is getting rejected on a date and their greatest fear is getting raped on a date, that is a really simple but clear way to explain the, the, the gaps and the realities. Now, we need to raise our men differently. We need to raise our boys differently. But most importantly, we only have this this rape culture and this culture of misogyny and sexism because it relies on the complicitness of other men. As in, we know as men that we can get away with sexual harassment in the workplace, sexism in the broader community and violence in the home because all of this is, is manufactured as private sphere, as men's business, as, as a private space. Mm. And so men rely on other men to turn a blind eye and men rely on other men to not speak up. And look, and it's and there is a layer of complexity which is harder and maybe not so much for, appropriate for me as a man to speak of. But unfortunately, at the heart of it, it's a men's issue because men are predominantly responsible for the majority of male violence. They're responsible for 90% of, of homicides against women. There is also a broader issue which falls onto all men and women around how do we break this culture of taboo and silence around. Um, because it's unfortunate, it's not just men that are reinforcing the message around, you deserve it, you're asking for it. Unfortunately, mm. women are at times too. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the consequence of internalised sexism and misogyny into our, into our culture. And I suppose I'm just naming that because uh, men need to take responsibility for ending it because 
informed and led by the voices and expertise of women. But we need to take the leap because it's our problem. It's a men's issue because we're the ones perpetrating it. Yeah. Um, but we also need a whole of community response around how we're raising men to be men that don't rely on a masculinity that is violent, controlling and abusive, but actually is, is has at the heart of it, if we raise our boys to love themselves, and then, then we'll have very different boys because once men are raised with a masculinity that's not toxic and dysfunctional but is nurturing and vulnerable, you're going to have better quality relationships first with themselves mm. and with, with women. When you look at six men a day are killing themselves and 30 men a day are trying to take their own lives, clearly this is a masculinity. When I often try to explain to men who often get really angry at me about this, uh, is saying, do you understand this is not about being anti-male, this is about being pro-male because the same violence that is killing record numbers of women and it, and is resulting in you know, um, what was that sh- that shocking figure? 2.1 children have grown up witnessing violence in the home. Um, and one in three women are going to experience some form of male violence. It's an epidemic. That that same violence is what's leading record numbers of men to take their own lives or to try to take their own lives. Mm. You know, so at the heart of that, and then we need to also be raising our girls to actually recognise that their value is in who they are, mm. not in the approval of men or the relationships they have with men, but in who they are. And that consent and boundaries are, are things that they have a right to. That's uh, a wide-ranging answer, but there's yeah. So yeah, so there's some of the things that I'm. And then the broader issue I'm really passionate about is is, is the broader issue of, of universal social justice, which is um, no one should be left behind. We're a prosperous, great country, and why do we have, you know, we we should be helping the poor, not drug testing them. You know, we need to be shifting narratives that see our homeless as an inconvenience and rather mm-hmm. that's what happens when you sow the seeds of despair rather than those of, of, of solution and compassion. So we need a drastic shift in our narrative where basically um, where people of colour, women, people with disabilities, people from different sexualities and face and race are basically being left behind in this country and we need a new way forward and a new conversation in this country about... Um, what does a thriving democracy look like? And it looks like one where all people of all diversities and backgrounds sit at the table as equals, with equity and equality. Mm. 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 I could ask you 3,000 questions about the things that you just touched on. You know, the purpose, of the, the reason I started this yeah. podcast was yeah. to have, to be able to have better conversations yeah. Yeah. Um, and for us to talk about things that are hard and challenging and yeah. difficult. It, you, you are passionate about so many things. Where, if somebody, where, where can we start? Where's the starting point, do you think, of kind of, because I think what a lot of things that you're talking about is community. Yeah, yeah. It comes back to community. Do you think that we've lost our sense of community? I think we have lost our sense of community. And I th- yes and no. Like, like I, the ACC is a beautiful microcosm of community in action. Uh, 1,200 volunteers, I think something like 24,000 people have, have donated, you know, to the organisation in the last couple of years. You've had thousands go into events for us. I've got little uh, grandmothers were bringing in, a knitting group were bringing in blankets they'd needed. Every day I see six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds doing food drives at their school. I see community, like 500 people rocking up to a volunteer information. I, I see it every day. We are inundated with acts of compassion and goodwill. So I think there's actually a thriving community. Like, I, I, we've lost the sense as in we are not being nurtured and told to believe in the power of our community. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was just writing a book, and, and in the book I was talking about, imagine if in our 24-hour news cycle the leading stories were actually about 
the way in which communities rallying together. You know, talking about the beautiful impact that marriage equality has had on the LGBTIQ community, or about local Sikh community who's running, you know, food banks for the poor, or about Indigenous elders taking their young men back onto country, or about the way the community's rallying to help refugees. Um, imagine if they were the lead stories. Imagine if, if what will be, instead of being assaulted with constant fear and panic and demonising of refugees and Muslims and young people of colour, we were actually being told the stories of hope and of the way in which our community comes together in times of great, at times, darkness and despair. Mm. We would have a much deeper sense of that hope. So I think community is still out there and vibrant, but it is fractured and it feels siloed mm. and it feels overwhelmed by being constantly under siege, as in we are trying to build a community while at the same time we're trying to defend it. So you have the Indigenous community comes together and comes up with a little statement, and the government sits there and lies to the public and says it's a third chamber. Um, we try to respond to refugees and to provide compassion stepping when government fails. Oh, we're trying to help people smugglers. Um, young people come from Africa desperately seeking to integrate and contribute, and then they're referred to as gangs. Like, you take any mm. group, and we are constantly have a, a government that's not interested in governing but just in ruling at any cost mm. and leaving all of us behind. So. I think there's an incredible opportunity for community to rise, and I see that every day here in the work that we do. Yeah. It speaks to the importance of representation as well, doesn't it? It's really important. In, in the ASRC, for us, the importance is about how we walk the talk. So we have a commitment whereby 50% of, of staff at all senior leadership levels must be women. So 90% of our senior leadership team are women, two-thirds of our board are women. We've had in place now for four years, if we want to keep women in leadership positions, then we need to invest in that. So we have 12 weeks paid maternity leave, which we self-fund, 12 weeks paid paternity leave, because if we're going to shift gender roles, then we need to invest in men and send the same message. We have flexibility. 80% of our senior leadership team all have children. Mm -hmm. And we guarantee when a woman has a child, she'll come back to the same senior leadership position. We've had in place for four years, two weeks paid domestic violence leave. If you're going to be genuine about walking a talk there, well then you need to invest in you need to invest in that. We have compassionate leave and care leave on top of personal leave because often the burden of caring falls on women. Yeah. The reality is for all the progress of feminism, relationships are still so gendered in a family home. Mm. So we don't do panels that are not 50% women. I personally will not do panels that are not 50% women. My next challenge is about how to start building into that the requirement, not just women, but also that there are diverse women on those panels, yeah. not just when I'm talking about refugees, but on any issue. Yeah. So we're only going to shift, you know, when I, like, you know, and men as male CEOs, when there are more male CEOs named John than there are women CEOs in <sighs> Australia, the important thing is here as men, how do we use our power? And these are really simple things because every time, you know, I was, men become almost like Stephen Hawking-like on Twitter and uh, finding excuses to justify not having gender balance panels. That man writing to me going, what if the last three panels at that conference were women-dominated? Would that make it okay for the fourth panel? Like, they literally start getting into astrophysics to justify their sexism. <laughs> and, and I kind of sit there and it's like, w the problem is we are raised as men to, that, to think that the least of us, the least intelligent of us, is better than the smartest woman in any room. And so we are raised with such a deeply ingrained sense of privilege that the only way things are going to shift is when men start being willing to give up their privilege. And why should men do that when women have such low expectations of men? Mm -hmm. And men know that. Mm -hmm. We know the expectations. is so small. It's yeah. so, you need to do so little. Stick on a white ribbon and people are applauding you. So as men in positions of power, how are we going to shift it? Because no one raises the issue of merit when it's a room full of men. Mm -hmm. They only raise the issue of merit 
when there are it's a, when when there are women represented. I had a friend telling me last night of two stories. One, where she had organised a panel, um, where it was a four women panel, and she got caught up by her senior manager going, "What's going on here? Can you explain this?" Truly disturbed by going, "What's happening here? That this is a panel of all women." And in another, and she, she's sharing another story where she 